You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're talking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books about the nuts and bolts of book selling. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Jeremy, we all love to go to our favorite independent bookstores and pick up our books or maybe order them from some online place. But how they get from the author's pen tip to the our hot little hands is not a very clear process to many of us. And you've been thinking about this, and I find this a really fascinating topic. So where do we start? Well, we can start, let's start at the retail, and let's start with, like, you in the bookstore. Because, I mean, that's where I got started. I started as an independent bookseller, not knowing any more than your average buyer of books. You know, bookstores get their books from somebody, presumably a publisher, and, you know, and they sell them. But it was a real eye-opener to kind of just start on the ground in the retail end and realize, you know, that bookstores have a bunch of different places that they can get the books, different discount schedules, and, you know, the kind of bind that they're in when they essentially have a price that comes with a, a price, you know, they have a, a, uh, an object with a price pre-affixed to it. You know, the, kind of, the idea of discounting and stuff is pretty common in the rest of the retail sector, except books are the only thing that come with, like, sticker price printed on them. That's and, a problem, I would imagine, for retailers. Well, it certainly c- makes it difficult to, to stand out in from price point, and it forces booksellers to come at it from different angles. And then you have the whole issue of discounting, which was a, a, a major issue that had to do with a, a lot of the supply chains and monopolies that were going on, that developed over the last few years. But let's, let's step back and um, kind of focus on a bookseller can buy their books Publishers, the you know, major publishers will have reps who come in and say, this is our forthcoming catalog. This is stuff that's coming out this summer and this fall. Um, and so pre-orders generally from large publishers, booksellers will buy directly from the publishers. You know, oh, okay, I'll take five of that, ten of that, none of that. And they come in at a, a generally an industry standard discount of 40% of the, co- of the cover price. Now, that, now I actually know somebody who does that, who, and she, her territory is uh, Northern California, for the most part. Sometimes she goes down to Southern California, works for Random House, and that she does exactly what she says. She, she goes from bookstore to bookstore, develops relationships with the, each bookseller, and tries to understand what their clientele is buying so she can say, well, you've got a lot of science fiction fans. You're going to want, you know, 50 copies of Richard Morgan's latest, or you've got, you're a mystery bookstore. You're going to want 50 copies of this Michael Harvey book. And thus the the publisher's rep goes through and kind of tries to understand what each bookseller wants and needs. Yeah, absolutely. Like the sales reps for publishers are, are you know, do incredible things because they're given, you know, an enormous number of titles and increasingly huge, huge geographic sections for independent sales reps. And so it's, they have a lot of information to kind of distill and distill the right information to the right, you know, bookseller. Some people do better with YA, some people do better with science fiction. You know, every individual bookstore has its strengths and weaknesses, and the good reps know that and can, can focus in on that. So they'll sell to the bookstore for, 
like a, a, a 40% discount, um, which means they get 40% off of the cover price, which means that the bookstore keeps, you know, um, 60% of that cover price. That seems uh, like a pretty big amount, actually. <laughs> it does, it, I, but I guess uh, it, it's needed because the volume. Or, of... sorry, they, yeah, they they pay sixty percent of the cover. Oh, price. okay, all right, right. Yeah, it's a forty percent discount. So they pay sixty percent of the cover price to uh, the buyer, to the publisher. Now, where things get interesting, so the the publisher then you know gets that sixty percent when they sell direct to a, a retail client. But things get interesting when you talk about books that are on reorder because there's a lot of publishers and it's hard for a bookseller to reorder every book from each individual publisher. And this is where um, wholesalers come in. Generally, a bookstore will have every week, every two days, you know, every other day, whatever the sales cycle is and how, how fast they sell through the stock. They'll reorder from, from wholesalers. And there are two major national wholesalers, Ingram and Baker and Taylor, and they get similar terms. They get a 40% discount from Ingram and Baker and Taylor, the same discount roughly that they get from the publisher. And what this means is that the publisher is also, in addition to selling to the retailers directly, they sell to these wholesalers. The wholesalers are selling you know, for the same discount, which means that when the publisher sells to a wholesaler, they have to give that wholesaler a piece as well. So when, a, when me as a publisher, I sell to a wholesaler, I have to give them a 55% discount, not the 40% discount. So, you know, I, the wholesaler then takes 15% of the cover price. So the vast majority of books, you know, the, the, the constant backstock, the stuff that's always on the shelves, your, you know, stuff that constantly gets reordered, generally goes through wholesalers. And so that's where most of your sales are going to come from. And, you know, that's an additional, from a publisher's perspective, an additional 15%. But, you know, on the other hand, it allows for a bookstore to, to restock inventory on an as-needed basis. They don't have to wait two weeks until they have a threshold, enough books to order from that publisher. It means the second that the bookstore runs out of copies of Richard Morgan's 13, they can push the button, and the international wholesalers are two days away from any bookstore in the country. Now, le- let me uh, understand this. But So on the publishing side, you take a bigger hit when you go through the through the distributor through the wholesaler through the wholesaler but uh, it's it's transparent either way to the bookseller but the bookseller has a longer lead time when they go direct to the publisher yeah well they have a longer lead time in that there may be different threshold levels of like oh okay so you, you have to order you can't order one at a time all right or you right. can't order 10 at a time or mm-hmm. you know um, and some bookstores do that, but what the benefit is that a bookstore can then combine orders. It may not just be Del Rey books that they're out of, but they sure, may be out sure. of Tor or Nightshade. Nightshade, <laughs> and so they can like every other day reorder the stuff that they sold out of and get it back on the shelf, so that the stuff that's selling stays on the shelf and stays selling. And that kind of just-in-time inventory management was a major kind of revolution for book selling. Um, that was made possible by these national wholesalers that had deep and wide inventory that could meet these demands. This is so, Ingram and B&T, right? Baker and Taylor, yeah, yeah B&T. And that was one thing that Nightshade um, kind of learned early on in the game was if we want to be able to have a presence on the shelf, not just have a one-time sale, 
where we establish a relationship and say, hey, please take my book. And then if it sells, the goal is to get that copy replaced back on the shelf so it can sell again. And the best way, and I understood this from coming at it from the retail end of things, understood that the best way to do that is to have it in stock and available from these wholesalers, from the places where the bookstores normally get their books. Because booksellers are some of the most overworked people in the universe, and they have um, got don't have time to chase after every individual publisher. If they did that, they wouldn't have time for anything else. So these wholesalers make it possible to just, oh, it's sold. You know, and the, a lot of times it's automated software. You know, you just push the button at the end of the day or the end of the week, and there's a reorder list. And oftentimes it's a reorder list that, you know, is sent electronically, and, you know, there doesn't need to be a lot of hand-holding or, or time spent doing that. It's just an automated process. So you can get your titles as part of that automated reorder process from for your independent bookstore or for a major chain. Either way, that's a big, big step. So having that wholesaler relationship, you know, getting the wholesalers to, A, carry your books, and B, stock you, was a, was a hurdle that we conquered very early. But then there's another, um, you, met, you use the term distributor, and oftentimes Ingram, you know, wholesalers and distributors are used interchangeably, but distributor is a, is a third middleman, or a second middleman, that lies on top of the, the wholesalers. And what they do is they provide a, a distributor as a place that can be like an umbrella sales group for a bunch of indep- independent publishers. So PGW was one, IPG was an international publishers group or publishers group West. You know, these are these are two distributors, and so they have um, relationships with a bunch of individual publishers, and so it's another kind of aggregation. But what the distributors provide is sales reps and sales force and existing relationships with buyers, both at the chains, at independent stores, and at these wholesalers. So when I go with a distributor, my distributor already has a relationship with Ingram, Baker & Taylor, Barnes & Noble, Borders. They have regional sales reps that can travel around all the indies. And so they extend my sales reach. Now, they extend my sales reach, but they want their cut too. So <laughs> everybody's got a got a t- is taking a slice off the top here. Yeah, and you know, so it's a long windy road from like you know, my warehouse or, you know, my printer to in the the customer's hand and everybody's got to have their slice. And so it it you really I mean Nightshade spent a long time without a distributor. We had a relationship with the wholesalers, but we were very wary of because there's a lot of distributors who they vary in quality. Some distributors are essentially warehouse fulfillment. They will warehouse your books and they'll ship them out for you, but their sales forces aren't really very significant at all. And some of them are were popped up regional wholesalers who wanted to kind of get into another game. So it was very questionable as to if they could sell our books because science fiction for us was a specialty market, and we were we did a really good job of reaching out to the independents. And for a long time, you know, we had the idea that there wasn't any other distributors out there that could sell the books better than we could, and so all they would be doing is warehousing. And so we kept an eye very closely on what what our warehousing, fulfillment, shipping, and receiving costs were. And as soon as those costs started rising and getting in the way of publishing the books and started rising such that they were close to what the, that percentage was going to be, that was when we realized, okay, we're big enough where 
a, a, a distributor is, is essential. It makes sense financially. The other thing a distributor does from, our, from a small publisher's perspective that was very, very important is they stabilize the cash flow. When you sell to a wholesaler like Ingram or Baker and Taylor, this is wonderful. As a small publisher, you're a really, really small fish in a big pond. And whether they pay you or pay you on time is directly proportional to the amount of time and effort you spend screaming and begging and crying and pleading for money. There were, there were, there were supposed to be, like when we had an account directly with Ingram, Baker, and Taylor, they were supposed to pay us on a monthly basis, net 90. So we'd ship them books that they requested, and 90 days later, they would send us a check. And every month, they were supposed to send us a check for books from the previous month. Well, that net 90 turned into net 120, turned into net whenever. And we would sometimes go three or four months not receiving a check from our wholesalers. And at the time, these were our primary source of income. And so you know, we'd have to go and say, well, fine, we'll put you on credit hold. And so then, you know, a month would go by and they'd just cut a check. But for that month of credit hold, we didn't have any books going out to them in their warehouse, so they couldn't sell our books. And so it was a really counterproductive relationship. Now, and, that sounds really difficult. And a lot of it had to do with just, you know, large bureaucracies. And, and then these wholesalers would go through different ownership changes. I once had a, a phone call with a distributor, or excuse me, with a wholesaler who had just been sold. And the, the person in the claims department was like, look, I'll be honest with you. Everybody here is losing their job in December. I'll get an emergency, emergency checkout to you for one-fifth of what I owe, but don't expect to get paid for uh, three months until all the new employees are in in January. And, you know, when we're trying to, like, you know, get paid so we can put a book out and pay our authors and then have to go and tell authors, yeah, you know those royalties that we sold your book, we just never got paid for it, so we can't pay you until we get paid. And it was like five years of this, six years of, like, just chasing after the money. It was terrible. And so, I mean, it was very demoralizing. Um, and so we finally, one of the big things we were always scared about was distributor bankruptcy. Because if a distributor goes under, they're holding all your money. And, and your books. And your books. And getting the books back is the easy, but if they go under, they may have a month to three months to six months of your sales like sitting in their bank, and then a bankruptcy court seizes all that money, and once again, you're a small fish in a big pond, and they're going to say, well, you know, Wells Fargo owns the notes for a billion-dollar loan. We're going to pay them first, and you publisher that is owed $50,000, that may be your entire operating budget for, you know, the quarter, but we're going to give you 50% of that. This has happened in the industry. It just happened with PGW. This has happened over and over, and so we were very scared of like distributors, but after five years of having wholesalers treat us kind of rough and tumble, we thought that well, it couldn't be any worse. And in fact, what it did was our distributor, regardless of whether the wholesaler pays them on time, our distributor pays us on time. Now, and so who, being able to you know, count on that cash flow really revolutionized the con- company, and that's when we were able to kind of really grow and move forward once we could knew what our cash flow was going to be and able to count on it. Now, who is your distributor? Our distributor is Diamond Books. Now, Diamond, Diamond Book Distribution. And Diamond Book Distribution is the book trade division of Diamond Comics. Diamond Comics is like the 800-pound gorilla in comic book publishing. They're essentially the, the sole distributor of, of comic books 
to comic book stores all around. If there's a comic book, it was it went through the middleman of Diamond at one point or another. And that was one reason why we went with them was because they're in one segment, they're extremely financially sound, and this other division essentially was bookstores want to carry graphic novels. There's an emerging market there. But bookstores don't want to pay the same terms, non-returnable terms, that comic book stores do. So let's create this new book division, staff it with people from the book trade, people who work with book distributors and publishers and stuff like that, who know the book trade, and sell comics, sell graphic novels to the book trade. And they got that going, and then they're like, well, we should pick up some fiction publishers as well. And so they started pursuing specifically science fiction publishers, because there's an odd serendipity, a lot of the graphic novel buyers are also the science fiction buyers. Sure, there's a lot of simpatico between the two genres. I mean, there's Neil Gaiman, he's both, and he's a superstar everywhere he goes. Yeah, exactly. And so it was a good fit for Diamond to distribute science fiction. Um, They had a lot of good science fiction people, people who worked at science fiction imprints, involved in the company. The other reason we went with them is because Diamond came after us with very aggressive terms. They were very eager to pick us up because we had actually a title that had been um, recommended to them by the science fiction buyer at Borders, actually. Which, which title? The Algebraist by Ian Banks. Well, of course. I... <laughs> we, mani- we managed to get the ear of the science fiction buyer at Borders because we had this new title. It wasn't out yet, but you know, we knew we needed to get chain penetration to maximize this title to reach its audience potential. And so we were talking with them, and the, the buyer then was a very nice guy, and he was like, look, I want to carry it, and I will support it, but I can support you better if you go with a distributor who I already have a relationship with. And I'm going to go ahead and suggest they get in touch with you because they're, they're good people and they know science fiction. So Diamond came after us. And we had some other distributors who had been knocking on the door as well, but Diamond's terms, you know, frankly, were, were much more favorable for us than anybody else. There's a lot of other kind of independent publishers, and we've talked to their distributors and their terms. And I mean, it's a tough thing to, to kind of say, we're going to give somebody else 12% of the cover price or, you know, 15%, whatever turns out to be, and then trust that, like, the warehousing fees and the, you know, the advertising co-op fees, and trust that all the stuff is going to actually be worthwhile. You're actually going to sell more books. And so that was a big leap of faith. And was it rewarded with actual cash returns? Well, initially, for the algebraist, yes. For a lot of other titles, um, it was a it was a big change we had because at the time we were doing mostly hardcovers mm-hmm. and you know the chains were were not as interested in hardcovers as they were trade paperbacks and so we kind of made a big transition you know Diamond was very frank with us they're like look out the gate you're probably not going to sell any more copies than you normally would have sold but we're going to establish a relationship and we're going to figure out what's going to work. And so it changed the type of projects that we could acquire. It became less possible for us to do 1,200 copy print runs or books with $40 cover prices. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it made can... it made it possible for us to do 1495 trade paperbacks and, and sell enough copies to make those pro- just as or more profitable than those $40 hardcovers. And that was always the, the scary flip. You go to trade paperback to sell more copies. But if you don't sell more copies, then you're going to lose money, so you should have stayed with hardcover. Mm. And so it was, it was an evolving thing, because we had a bunch of projects in the pipeline as hardcovers, 
but after a year of diamond, I mean, we had pretty much switched over to, you know, everything either as a trade paperback or eventually gets a trade paperback. We had some successes with, uh, you know, like the algebraist, and the buyers got to know us, and we started getting more placements. Um, we started playing, you know, co-op games. <laughs> Those slots in front of the bookstores are, are paid for. Mm. Um, and and did, you, did you pay for them, or did Diamond pay for them? Um, well, it's on a case-by-case basis. Generally, it's the publisher's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Diamond has been very generous with us in the past and have picked up half of the co-op. But also let me be clear that it's not simply a pay-for-play kind of deal. Like, everybody wants those slots, all the big publishers. And so the buyers pick and choose based on their own views of quality and saleability and stuff like that. Sure. It's not just like it goes to the highest bidder or something like that. So, and then you have to make your case. They'll, they'll check out the book, and they'll say yes or no. And then you, have, you, know, and then you can pay for that co-op. But so it's, it's not a completely corrupt process like it seems. <laughs> I mean, you know, it is, frankly, advertising. And also those placements mean certain threshold orders. If you're going to get front of store in every border store in the country, that means that your orders are going to be going up commensurately. So, and they're relatively savvy, too. Like, they have different co-op. They're like 100 best in category stores. Like, the 100 best science fiction stores in the country will get this title or the top 100 stores in this category or yeah, so they they so kind they of understand what they understand that different stores sell more of uh, the science fiction genre or the mystery genre yeah yeah wow exactly. that's interesting <laughs> and you know i hope i'm not giving away their trade secrets or anything but you know i mean these are relatively savvy booksellers you know they didn't get to be industry titans and you know large segments of the marketplace for being bad at what they do <laughs> I guess so not. you know they they do have a sense of some stores are better at things than others and you know and they have a sense of how to better promote titles in those stores it just involves taking money and paying the gatekeeper but like i said it's great advertising and i can i can tell just from a weekly sales perspective of when a title is like on the front those front tables Versus when they go back on the shelf in the section, I mean, I can I can see a very noticeable interesting in sales. So I mean, from my perspective, that's definitely worth it. But you know, that's one more. It's a different line item. That's a promotional expense. It doesn't come out of the the cost of any individual title, like you know the supply chain. But so you know, a distributor opened up all these opportunities for us. So in the end, they were totally worth the percent. You know. I mean, in the first six months when they started paying us on time, I was like, you know what? They can take their percentage, and if all they do is pay us on time, it's <laughs> worth their percentage. Yeah, I would imagine so. So, you know, not, not forget, you know, because the other thing is when you sell the wholesalers, you pay the, sh- you pay the freight. So just the shipping costs when I wasn't sending, you know, six or seven boxes to Ingram and six and seven boxes to Baker and Taylor every week, and I was paying the freight that added a lot of overhead. So there's a lot of a lot of benefits to be gained by that. But just as we saw in the last year and a half, the big one of the big bankruptcies, one of the big ripples in the industry was the PGW bankruptcy. Now what happened to them? They they were this is Pacific, uh, Publishers Group West. Yeah. They were a, a distributor and, and I know that uh, a number of small presses were were distributing through them. I believe sub Terrain. No, not subterranean. No. But um, Thundermouth, mm-hmm. um, Carolyn oh. Grab. There was. There, they were one of the biggest independent um, distributors in the country. Right, Avalon. Um, and it. Well, it, it's a. It's a very interesting story. 
Avalon Publishing Group was the publisher, and Publishers Group West was the distributor. And Publishers Group West distributed Avalon and all their associated imprints and hundreds of others. Well, about, gosh, I guess it was about six, eight years ago now, the head of Avalon Publishing Group decided to expand the publishing side, and he sold the distribution side. So he sold the distribution side to a company called AMS, Advanced Marketing Search, some silly acronym. AMS was a distributor who essentially sold books to um, warehouse clubs, like Costco, Price Club. They were in business to package up hundreds of thousands of copies of titles from Random House or whoever and sell it to these, you know, these big warehouse clubs. That was their core business. And they picked up PGW um, for cash um, and ran it as a separate entity, but they had all this cash from selling to Costco, and so they picked up PGW. Charlie Winton, who had been running Avalon, took all the cash from AMS and expanded Avalon. Now, they still had Publishers Group West as the distributor. They just didn't own it anymore. And that went on for, for a while, and it seemed like it was a good business decision because they bought a lot of smaller publishers and consolidated, and Avalon was a huge kind of mini conglomerate. It was a very successful concern. What ended up happening was AMS, the, the side that was selling to all the warehouse clubs, was playing funny with their accounting. So they were you know, not fully accounting for returns, they were kind of handling double billing, co-op. They were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so the Securities and Exchange Commission started investigating them. And then they started <laughs> having to restate earnings. And again, none of this had anything to do with PGW, which was kind of like on its own, running, and perfectly fine. It all had to do with their core business of selling to warehouse clubs. 10,000 copies of the latest John Grisham, a pot boiler. Yeah, yeah, or how to love life to its fullest and whatever oh. self-help book. <laughs> and so they were playing funny with the numbers and were getting massive loans from creditors like Wells Fargo on the basis of one set of books. And then when they started having to restate earnings and redo things, these creditors were like, well, wait a minute. And then the economy started going down and their cash flow started getting a little bit crinkly on that side of the business. And so they went to the banks and were like, look, can we renegotiate these hundreds of millions of dollars of credit that we have, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and next thing you know, PGW is bankrupt. And what happens is all of the cash, because here's the, the truly terrifying thing, is most distributors have like a net 90. They, they only pay once a quarter. So they'll sit on all of your revenue for, for like four months, for three months, and, won't, and you only get paid like four times a year for that sales cycle. So not only is it like a, a long time out from when you get paid, but so they'll sit on your... It's a lot of money. So it's a lot of money. It'll be like an entire quarter's worth of sales. So PGW is essentially sitting on you know, these bank accounts of cash from all their clients that they owe money to. And, you know, the bankruptcy court is like, look, one of your sub-assets has all this cash, and this is how you get bankruptcy deals that are like, look, you, you publishers, you need to, you know, accept 50 cents on the dollar, 60 cents on the dollar. You know, you need to accept half of what you get owed because we're paying off Wells Fargo. And, <laughs> so and there's a lot of speculation that the bankruptcy was something that was negotiated between the 
the management at AMS and their creditors, they kind of knew they had all this money that wasn't theirs, and they could make things right there. And so very bitter, very ugly, and it has destroyed hundreds of publishers. You've been hearing people like McSweeney's, the industry stalwarts, well-respected, had to go begging with hat in hand and say, we lost half of our revenue for the year. Can you please buy direct from us so we don't go out of business? The big gamble that Winton did totally failed. His Avalon Publishing Group, the biggest client of PGW, went bankrupt and was sold off to his main competitor, Perseus. So all of their sub-imprints, Carolyn Graff no longer exists. Carolyn Graff was a... A fabulous imprint that did yeah. Brian Stable for... So the, um, the two main genre imprints at Avalon were uh, Carolyn Graff, like we talked about, and Thundermouth, which was actually um, Four Walls, Eight Windows. John Oakes's press Four Walls, Eight Windows, actually uh, about three or four years ago, got bought out and folded into Avalon. Four Walls became Thundermouth. Now, they had a very aggressive kind of idiosyncratic genre list. They published like Lucius Shepard and Rudy Great Rucker. Great stuff, yeah. It was Corey some... Doctorow's collection came out from uh, Thundermouth. Yeah, yeah. So with Avalon sale to Perseus, the two imprints that were doing genre fiction were the two that got axed at Perseus. They got axed? So, I was wondering, because the Perseus actually uh, published or distributed the, the latest Greg Bear book. Right, Quantico. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but they, yeah, they, they got rid of both Karen Graff and Thundermouth, which was oh, kind of an enormous blow for genre publishing, because they were kind of like, they were publishing Paul Filippo and Corey Doctorow and Michael Moorcock and... They were the go-to guys for the idiosyncratic weird, and a lot of that had to do with John Oakes, the editor mm-hmm. um, from Four Walls, Eight Windows. He had a very great eye for you know quality idiosyncratic stuff that he could do something with. That was a great imprint. I loved their stuff. I mean, and, and the books were nice too. Nice trade paperbacks. Yeah, oh, no, boy, they were I wonder. Awesome. So they they are gone. Yeah, and so that was another casualty. Soft Skull Press was another one. They were an independent. They were distributed by PGW, and they had gone through some tough times, but they had built themselves back up, and boom, they they ended up um, going bankrupt. But proof that some people will always overcome, Charlie Winton of, of Avalon ended up getting together with a co-founder of Counterpoint Books and created Winton Shoemaker & Co. and uh, Counterpoint, and they acquired Soft Skull, and so, and there was talk of them moving um, offices to Berkeley. So things have finally pretty much completely shaken out. The the whole bankruptcy agreement has all been settled. So everybody has gotten either bought out some kind of payment or something. It's just that there's so many casualties because, you know, most publishers can't wait a year and a half for banks, bankruptcy court to release funds and take 50% on the dollar and still keep going. So, you know, Nightshade sort of dodged a bullet, but at the same time, that was a bullet that, like, <laughs> we've been watching for, for since the day we were founded. Now, you, you guys just started doing mass market paperbacks, which I would guess that Diamond likes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's another way for them to kind of expand into kind of a newsstand market they don't have much presence with. And, um, and also, you know, the general bookstore market, it's something that sells more, co- theoretically, more copies than the trade paperbacks. So, you know, we're still seeing how the economics of that one work out and how much buy-in we can get and what the kind of shelf life is, how it is different from trade paperbacks. But, you know, again, it's one of those scary things where, you know, we kind of just got to grit our teeth and uh, gut check and, and go with it because if we want to grow, if we want to be a full-service publishing 
publishing house, you know, one of the first things was get national distribution, get the relationships with the chains, you know, do trade paperbacks. And, you know, mass markets are, you know, one of the last pieces of that puzzle. Being able to go from hardcover to mass market for a lot of titles is, is sort of key. Well, this is, it's really been fascinating to, to see Nightshade, which started out as very much a, 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 a small press publisher publishing small print runs and of expensive books that were beautifully designed, and to see this growth into somebody who is with, with a, a, a publishing list and, and, you know, a publishing presence that's giving, should be giving the, peop, the big people at uh, Bantam, Tor, everywhere else, you know, pause to think. Well, I, 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 we had a, an old saying that we were going to conquer New York with, with the books that they didn't want, and it sort of worked out that way. I mean, the large publishers um, are increasingly focused on this section of the market that sells a lot, a lot of copies, the bestseller market. And, you know, I mean, the editors who are doing the day-to-day work and acquiring books, those people in the trenches love what they're doing. They're, they're really good people, but you can't change the direction of a train. It's kind of how I see large New York publishing is like a train going down the track of like we make and sell bestsellers. Everything else is just cake. But we, you know, we do this. This is our core business. And they do that very well. And they can, you know, generate interest on a first novel. You know, they can, they can get that kind of attention that can make it possible. But, you know, there's a lot of midlist writers who just aren't being served. And as I've demonstrated, <laughs> as Nightshade has demonstrated, it's, it is economical to publish 5,000 trade paperbacks of a book. It is economical to publish 3,000 hardcovers. Mm-hmm. It is economical to publish 15,000 mass markets. You can do it at those small numbers. An editor who routinely does, does that in New York isn't going to be an editor in New York for very long. So it's a different scale, but it's one of those things where it only takes one book to make a house. Like Black Sparrow Press for years, they had their one author that carried the freight, that paid all the bills, that was a bestseller, Charles Bukowski, like, you know, was their guy. And then they were able to publish, like, all this great poetry for, like, 40 years because they had the, the one, you know, and so it does, for a smaller house to, to be successful from a bigger house, it does, you know, it just takes one house author to become really successful, and that opens up a lot of doors. I mean, as it is right now, I've, I've beat out other New York publishers for, for books. I've had agents go with me instead of a New York house with a comparable offer of money. Well, you know, that's because... fantastic. That's nice to hear because uh, I, I think it really keeps the diversity in the marketplace. And also, I think smaller publishers like you reach out more directly to the independent booksellers and, again, more directly to the, the individual book buyer. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I, that's where I got my start. And I really believe that you know those independent booksellers who really love and know what they're selling, that's the core, core transaction. Readers are constantly looking for that something new that can't be defined by a marketing department, that can't be defined by the kinds of things that New York does. It, it happens on the ground in the bookstores. And so I've always tried to keep that at the forefront. Even when, we were, when our books were really expensive and low print runs, we gave away a lot of copies to booksellers. We gave away a lot of copies to reviewers because, you know, that's how people find out about books. That's how people find out about books that they lo- the books that they end up loving. Um, you know, and so the BookSense 76 list and the organizations like that are, are key. And so, yeah, they'll always be at the forefront for us. We've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Yeah, great talking with you. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.